Welcome to the Sub Club Podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing app businesses. We sit down with the entrepreneurs, investors, and builders behind the most successful apps in the world to learn from their successes and failures. Subclub is brought to you by RevenueCat. Thousands of the world's best apps trust RevenueCat to power in-app purchases, manage customers, and grow revenue across iOS, Android, and the web. You can learn more at revenuecat.com. Let's get into the show. Hello, I'm your host, David Barnard, and with me today, RevenueCat CEO, Jacob Biding. Our guest today is Eric Crowley, a tech investment banker with GP Bullhound. With investments in companies ranging from Spotify to Whoop and clients such as AllTrails, Pinkbike, and Lingoda, GP Bullhound provides transaction advice and capital to many of the leaders in the consumer subscription software space. On the podcast, we talk with Eric about the largest consumer marketplace that's ever existed, the growing exit opportunities for CSS businesses, and why the CSS industry may be relatively recession-proof. Hey, Eric, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Hey, great to be here again, guys. Thanks again for having me. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, I'm glad it's uh, number three, I think. You might be the first three-peat on... on uh on the, the Subclub podcast. And that's because you, you make this wonderful, um, this wonderful CSS report, consumer subscription report every year, which I think was how I first found you was finding, Googling customers and prospects for us. I came across this PDF. I was like, hey, y'all look at this thing. That's kind of about the market we didn't know we were serving. <laughs> so it's great <laughs> to have you back. That's why we're here. Yeah, so we've, we've, this is the third time talking through your CSS report. We're not going to cover everything. So uh, if you're listening, um, Google Eric Crowley, GP Bullhound, CSS report, we'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, it's got tons of information that we're just not going to have time to cover today. Uh, but I wanted to kick off with something you mentioned in this new, you actually mentioned it in a talk about the CSS report, but it's not in the report. Uh, but when you mentioned it at the at App Promotion Summit in San Francisco, I was sitting in the audience and it blew my mind. Um, and so I wanted to, to kick off with this. And what you mentioned is that the app stores combined are the biggest consumer marketplace ever created, which I, I mean, I've been in the industry since literally the start in 2008. And it just, I never put two and two together. What an incredible thing that is to have 5 billion plus users all able to instantly purchase anywhere in the world. How do you, how do you figure that? Like, how's that? How do you dial up to that number and that realization, Eric? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question, guys. And, and to be honest, like in the reports, we generally try to get so granular. We're down in the details. We're looking at cohort retention rates, LTVs, growth rates, you know, individual companies. And, and as we were thinking about this one, and, and as Jacob, as you mentioned, it's our fourth time writing the report. I, at some point, I think I was sitting there having a cup of coffee, just thinking like, what are we talking about? Like macro, what are we talking about? And then I, I started thinking about, all right, we're talking about, you know, close to 3 billion people have smart, or sorry, close to 5 billion people have smartphones, right, around the globe, both in the primarily Apple and Google. And that, that excludes China, right? I'm being very specific and, and not including any Chinese in that number. And then, then you have, so that right there, you have the most people that have ever been connected in the history of the world, purely based on the smartphone alone. And every one of those smartphones is connected to their Apple stores or their Google stores. 
And so if you just say that out loud, right, and you think about any other place ever in the history of time that has been able to get 6 billion people able to purchase from one source instantly, I'm just not, I couldn't find any, even, even a comparable, right? You could kind of think about Amazon and how many users they have. You could think about, um, you know, any Walmart or anything like that. And it's, it's still not even close to the amount of people that they could reach instantly. And then over the last two to three years, and, and it started, you know, five, seven years ago, but over the last two, three years, almost all those participants have connected some sort of payment to their phone. And that's a very big switch, right? If you guys even, I mean, maybe I'm dating myself, but I used to type in credit card numbers yeah. into a browser and then purchase something using a credit card. And most people mm-hmm. of that of that 5 billion don't have credit cards, but they have some sort of digital payment method now, uh, like M-Pesa in, in Africa. And there's, there's tons of solutions all across uh, Asia through like Alipay and WeChat. And so if, if you think about that, that just kind of hit me. It was like, wow, we are talking about you're building for a market where even if you're building from where I'm from, like in a small town in Ohio, that app can be downloaded by someone in Indonesia the second you put it on the store. And as soon as you say that, you're just like, wow, that is an immense reach that no other company has been able to produce. It's kind of like what the internet was meant to be, but that never truly achieves that, right? I think the app stores and the mobile and like the, the, the payments infrastructure, the payments facilitation in the app stores has made that like actually a viable market, right? Like technically, yes, somebody could have bought your SaaS probably from wherever country, but they would, like you said, need an American credit card or need to have all this like payment facilitation, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And we've actually solved that problem largely, like Apple acting as a clearinghouse for cross-border cash, <laughs> right, has created this. <laughs> Uh, market for the first time, which is really interesting. I mean, if you study human history, like the creation of markets often is associated with the creation of, of like innovation and like fundamental changes in technology. Um, not to get too grand with like, you know, apps, <laughs> but like <laughs> it is really, really? A, you know, certainly a, a good uh, uh, cocktail party <laughs> fact. Yeah, exactly. And if, and if you, you, I mean, we all kind of think apps are simple, right? But if you think about it, apps are now leveraging one of the most highly advanced pieces of technology with tons of sensors, GPS, voice, video, you know, they've got different motion sensors throughout every phone, right? It's it's more advanced than mm-hmm. the space shuttle and everyone has it. Yeah, the ubiquity, right? It's always on you, always on. Right? Always on, always recording data, right? Always available. And so then it just makes these apps, which we say apps, right? And they, we kind of mean they're, you know, simple, but that's not the case anymore, right? And so when you say apps, it's really just a portal into a different service that just happens to come through your phone. And so that's why we get really excited about the space is because they are advancing at such a crazy rate that the stuff that, you know, my daughter will use, you know, versus what we started to use when we said app, they're not even close to the same thing. Yeah, it makes me um, slightly regrettable the direction that Apple decided to brand apps in the early days, right? Where it's like these little (laughs) tiny chicklets and then they had like the cute falling walls at WDC and all this stuff. They did all this stuff to kind of like honestly like diminish the software because at the time they were toys right they felt more like toys yeah it was a single purchase game tetris yeah yeah when you think i use the travis like i don't know if you guys watched uh some of the stuff on travis kalanak and uber but that example where he's on a stage in in san francisco and he's like he calls up a car in china through an app but it physically moved a car in china with the touch of his phone or the touch of his finger to a phone in a whole nother continent so like, sure, it's an app, but it's really a portal to a whole service that we don't even think about. That's something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, too. You know, as people talk about subscription fatigue or, you know, how much people are really willing to spend and is our consumer subscriptions going to grow? Are there still opportunities to build apps or is it, you know, I mean, I remember 
gosh, 2014, then again in 2016, it was the end of apps. You know, there's just, there's an app for everything. You don't need anything more. And I think, you know, part of why I'm so bullish on the subscription business model is because of what we've seen the past six years or so since it started to become more widely used. And when Apple kind of opened it up in 2016, is that, you're seeing developers be able to build more and more sophisticated tools. And then those more sophisticated tools, consumers are seeing more and more value and getting more and more value. And it really is this incredible flywheel where even though Apple did kind of, and it's a great point, um, Jacob, about Apple kind of diminishing the value of apps to, to their benefit because they're selling the hardware. But I think consumers have started to experience the value and that perception seems to really be changing in 2022. Yeah, I mean I think that's that exactly captures our thesis is is these are becoming more integrated into your life. They're not toys, they're not gimmicks, right? They are tools that streamline everything you do. And so if that if if it streamlines your daily life, right? That makes you much likely more likely to stay around, to be retained, to use industry par- language. And that turns us into very valuable businesses, right? They're not point solutions where you're selling at one time. And, you know, the historical Mm -hmm. knock around consumer subscription was consumers churn. They try something, they don't like it, and Mm -hmm. they leave. And that's absolutely still true, right? You know, I'll try 10 things, but I will use one, and I'll use one for years. And so I think that's, we talk about locals versus tourists. and, And I think what a lot of businesses have discovered over the last two, three years is who are their locals and to build for them. And so that's that's really transitioning some of the financial profiles of companies we're working for. Yeah, you'll never I think I think subscription fatigue will never be a thing as long as you're producing value. Like yeah. as long as there's as long as it's valuable. Like people are not going to get fit. I mean, there's by definition, they're not going to get fatigued of paying for a thing that's bringing them value. If the money they're paying is less than the value they're deriving, then there's not a pro- I mean, th- there will yeah. always be people griping and fatiguing, but they're they are the people for for whom there's not enough value in the product, right? <laughs> and they should they should fatigue and they should churn and you know, leave the locals, right? Yeah, a terrible analogy I use, Jacob, is if you walk into your 7-Eleven and you go to the drink counter, right? You probably select five of the drinks that are one of the 200 drinks you could get at 7-Eleven, right? There's different iced teas, there's Cokes, there's Pepsis, there's Gatorades, Powerades. So you maybe drink five of those, but there are 200 in that counter for a very specific reason is because the guy who walks in right behind you, the daughter that walks in behind him, they all go to something different. And so consumers are very broad. They're very different. And so the definition of niches in this space is tens and millions. And so that is a big business. If you're selling someone a subscription to 10 million people, that's a huge business. Yeah. And one of the interesting things that we've seen this year that you mentioned in the report is that non-game revenue passed game revenue for the first time in 2022. Uh, I, I'm curious if if you have any insights onto why you think that happened or, or what it pretends for for future growth. Because the game industry has has just kind of always been the dominant thing for mobile. And even just, you know, for software generally, consumers are probably more likely to be interacting with games in a paid sense than uh than paid software. Right. Paid in like total hour usage as well, right? Yeah. Like games consume a ton of the the eyeball hours um in, in mobile. So it seems to be a really momentous kind of uh, line in the sand that non-game revenue passed game revenue for the first time. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I wish I could tell you I had all perfect data behind the you know the Apple announcement there, but 
But stepping back and just thinking about it from from our lens, right? I think, Jacob, you correctly called it out. Like games are, they occupy a ton of your eyeballs. Most of the CSS services we think about, right, their job is not to occupy their time, right? They've shifted away from an ad model where you have to look at it or click something in order to make money for the publisher to, hey, I'm here to do a service for you. I'm here to do it as efficiently and easily as possible. And then I'm going to get out of your way. And that's, that's the whole beauty of this CSS model. And so even though we don't think about maybe it's occupying the most eyeballs, like a Netflix, which is designed to occupy eyeballs, it's, it could be something that just functions in the background. You know, and there's, there's thousands of businesses now that are worth billions, or not thousands, sorry, hundreds of businesses that are worth billions that are being built in the app store right now. And so, you know, if you just say that, right, that's a lot of revenue that's being generated and you're starting to see that happen through the, through the stats. And so what I'm really curious to see is the acceleration of the services are, they're growing much faster than the games. And so the question is, at what point do they become uh, a materially bigger business than games for the app stores? Right now, it's called about equal. Right. Um, maybe it shifts Which, back. I mean, the, when I started this game, wasn't the case. <laughs> right. No, like even even like Revenue Cat, I think when we started, it was 25 or 30 percent, which isn't terribly far from 50. But like when you consider that that's almost a 60 percent growth rate in two or three years, like that's pretty crazy. Right? When you're trying to catch up to a business, an industry that's growing, you know, sometimes 30, 50 percent a year in the gaming space. Right. Yeah. There's amazing games being built now on on mobile or like, you know, if you look at PUBG mobile and you compare it to the very first mm-hmm. iPhone game that came out, it's a wildly different experience, right? You'd never recognize it. Yeah. And one of the more interesting things, uh, Eric Sufer actually talked about this is how games, especially on mobile shifted to the, uh, free to play model where you can get a ton of value and have a lot of fun by just grinding. And that that's kind of some of the fun in some of those games is just grinding away. And it, it's interesting. And I want to get into the kind of, you know, macro slowdown and are we headed to a recession, how that's going to impact. But I think one of the more interesting things, and, and maybe this is part of the trend of, of consumer subscription software and non-game purchases overtaking game purchases, is that those in-app purchases ultimately are kind of a luxury good that in 2022, when as inflation is rising and there's other challenges, are you going to spend, you know, 20 bucks on gems in Candy Crush? No, you can actually play Candy Crush and still have a lot of fun. It was kind of a luxury good. And then with consumer subscription software, it's adding a ton of value. As it's it's an, it'd be an interesting debate to see if it, you would call that a luxury good or not. I think there's probably a spectrum that right. are and some that yeah, aren't. Yeah, no, no, but. absolutely. But I think just framing it that way was really interesting. And Eric made some really good points around that. But with consumer subscription software, like I, I subscribed to Monarch Money this year. They're a Revenue Cat customer, incredible personal finance tool. So like as we were tightening our budget, a consumer subscription software tool has made that incredible for us. It, it's 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 accreditive instead of just, you know, blowing, you know, 20 bucks on gems somewhere. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's, that's an interesting dynamic that's playing out as far as with, with how the game revenue may actually start to slow down and be more impacted. Yeah. I mean, you, you, the, 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 the thought being the bet being like, is this revenue more durable? Right. I, I would say so. I mean, Apple seems to believe that, right? Like their whole push on cert, they, they, Maybe I don't know if it was similar to my take that like I didn't feel ever feel super good about how monetization happened on on games yeah. or if they just think actually I mean, I would think at a company at Apple scale, they're not really <laughs> they're not losing sleep over it as an institution. <laughs> but like uh, uh, I sorry, I have to think they believe that this is the future, um, you know, and it, it comes down to all these trends like the maturation of the software 
I, I guess it's a little bit of like chicken and egg. Like, did we need the business model first to create the maturation of software or did the maturation of software create the business model? Probably unanswerable, right? right. Like they're just two things that like have grown together, but it is really exciting because it always, it does feel like I'm, uh, uh, you know, not to create moments out of nothing, but it does feel somewhat symbolic, right? That, that for, for finally like software that isn't just about occupying your time and bringing not to say games don't bring value and all. It's just a different kind of, it's like a different kind of value for people. Um, uh, it's like, I would say like one more or less specific vertical. Um, now we're having this blossoming of tons of other verticals. And I think that's, yeah, uh, it gets me excited. I'm glad, I'm glad we're going in a good direction with this stuff. Yeah. What else are you thinking about Eric in terms of, of kind of where we're at with inflation and kind of, uh, recession worries and how, how do you see that impacting CSS going forward? I mean, listen, inflation, let's just say what it, what it leads to, which is potentially a recession, is, is usually never good for, for any business, right? It's, it's just not. Um, you know, so I think there will, be, there will be people that will be negatively impacted. I think from my standpoint, right, we look at CSS businesses as, as not a luxury good, right? Generally, they are uh, an enhancement at an affordable price, right. right? I mean, most CSS businesses you're paying for are, you know, maybe max 100 bucks a year, right? Mm-hmm. Depending on what kind of subscription you're signing up for. And so if you, if you use the example, right, Hey, you've got to cut budget. You're, you're going to cut a thousand dollars out of your monthly spend and you go to Equinox and it's 120 bucks a month, or you can get a fit on subscription for a hundred dollars a year, right? You can still work out, you can still keep healthy, right? And you save $900. So to me, I, I think CSS businesses, because of their cost structure, right? Because they're delivered digitally, they actually could stand to benefit as consumers look for affordable luxuries, right? I think a lot of people looked at uh, Netflix as expecting a lot of high churn during the recession. But to be honest, it's it's cheaper than going to a movie, right? Yeah. So what you may do is you may cut back on going to the movies and keep your Netflix subscription. And so I think that will waterfall through tons of other things where people are saying, hey, I want to go do something a little more cheaper. I want to go hiking. Great. Check out all trails. Check out FatMap, right? And so that's a free service or that's a free activity, hiking, um, and then you pay a little bit for a subscription versus taking a vacation, right? So, I mean, I think I think CSS businesses will benefit quite a bit from people that are saying, hey, I want to have some fun, but I just need to cut my spend. Yeah, that's a really great perspective. And it'll probably, as as with anything, probably be very context dependent. Some apps will flourish in, in you know, if we do kind of slide deeper and deeper toward a recession and then you know, uh, and then some apps probably will be on the on the chopping block. I mean, I was looking at that myself recently uh, you know, as we've tightened our budget, I did go and cancel a few subscriptions, but I, Oh, I, I, I just accrete them because I'm always <laughs> testing out customers and stuff like this. Well, that's so the thing I had, like, like, hello. I had all these, <laughs> that, that, that number that, uh, uh, apps passing, uh, game that was probably a good thing. <laughs> yeah, like, you the, uh, the bottom bar was just Jacob spend alone at the bottom. Yeah, right Jacob spend, yeah. I have a lot of them in there. Uh, but I do have a couple core new ones that I've been using too. Like I keep finding, I just got into cycling a lot and I'm like training for events. And now I have like probably. $20 a month in random apps that I'm subscribed <laughs> to for like different aspects of that. Uh, and it's like, again, to your point, Eric, like a relatively cheap activity, right? Like yeah. not, I'm not going to a gym, I'm not doing whatever, but like, here's a couple apps that take sitting on my bike trainer every day and make it much more directed, much more focused, much more data driven. And it's a really good value. Yeah. And, well, and, like and to, perfect- your, to your locals and, and tourist point, you know, the ones that I canceled were just the ones that I don't really use anyways. And I still have, not counting, you know, Netflix and HBO Max and those kind of things. I still have, I think I counted eight 
app subscriptions totaling over $200 a year. And when you, your point earlier is exactly what I experienced personally. I go to like, you know, start cutting expenses. Uh, I've got four kids, you know, things are expensive these days. And it, there's just not a lot, there's not, it's not a lot of money. There, there's not a lot to squeeze out of canceling a few more. And I get a lot yeah. of value out of the the apps that I do subscribe to. So exactly what you're describing is how it played out in my own personal life. When I think like, but a key thing to mention, right, is those apps have to continue to deliver value for you, right? Yep. During a recession, the the bar for value will go up, right? right. You say, hey, is this mm-hmm. truly worth 50 bucks? So like an area that I could see being impacted is entertainment. Over over the recession or over the, you know, COVID uh, area, people signed on to HBO Max, and then they got Paramount, and then they had Netflix already, and then they have Peacock. Mm-hmm. Peacock, there you go. <laughs> a great one yeah. in there. Everyone's got one. Everyone's got it. Like, and some of it was given in for free, right? So you got a free subscription, and then you got ESPN Plus because you wanted to watch that one game, and all of a sudden you're like, I just bought two cable packages. When you look at your total, yeah. So like, <laughs> those were the ones I slayed. Yeah, right? so those were the ones I went through. I was I like, I don't will get, I'm not watching I think anything. those will get pretty beat up, yeah. right? I think because like because you can only watch so much TV, right? Now that you're going back outside, and in a recession, that'll probably happen. But then like you look at a company like Grammarly, right? I work for a very international firm. I've got people that speak, you know, 10 languages across our offices. Grammarly now, before we were like, oh, spell check. Why would you, you have that on your, on your, on your phone or you have it on your laptop for office? Well, half my business now is sometimes through WhatsApp or text happens to my phone or Slack. And so having Grammarly on there, make sure that no matter who I'm communicating with, it's spelled right. It looks good. And then that tools are getting so good that it actually makes my writing better. Right. And so when I when I have colleagues that are sitting in Spain or Stockholm, right, and they're communicating with me, they're all using Grammarly because it just makes the communication that much smoother. So it went from being a nice to have to, oh, my God, this makes me better at my job. You you know, you don't churn off Mm. that because of a recession. Yeah. So in all this recession talk and yet there's still a huge opportunity and there's going to be categories that do really well. You mix all that up and it seems like oh, this is still a, a really great space. But then you look at public CSS valuations having dropped four to five to four to five times revenue, which is, is fairly low. D- do you think some of those companies are pretty undervalued at the moment? Where do, where do you think you see things going in the private market uh, currently and then um, the potential for what's going to happen over the next few years as far as valuations? Yeah, so maybe let's just talk public comps, right? And, and if you look at CSS comps and you graph them versus other uh, enterprise SaaS businesses, as far as uh, revenue multiples, you'll see the exact same curve. And so so basically what happened is I think there was a huge push into these stocks by, by retail investors and institutional investors over the last uh, 18 months. And people were saying, this is where it's going to be. These guys have high margins. Let's buy, 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 buy. And so there's a lot of uh, that is now coming out, right? As interest rates have gone up, a lot of people have traded out of those stocks. And so the public market valuations have come down quite a bit, right? And so the one thing to note, though, there's just pretty big divergences in those, right? Indexes by nature are averages. And I, as a banker, I hate averages because they (laughs) they remove the individuality of the business, right? It's a terrible summary statistic, the worst one. It is, exactly. And so people say, okay, there's you know, so, but is it directionally? Is it directional in how the market is feeling about an asset class? Sure. Right. But when I go and talk to a client or I talk to a buyer, you know, I use, I use comps and, and, and uh, valuations as a guideline, maybe as a starting point. And by no means is that the finish line. Right. And so what, what, I would, what I would guide people is say, yeah, I think some of those stocks got overheated during the recession. I think people are now saying they're probably not where they are, where they could be. But if you actually look at the underlying financials, almost every one of those businesses is doing better than it was in 2020. That's just that's just a fact. 
Right. And so then you say, okay, so maybe they got a little overvalued. Now they're maybe a little undervalued. Now, none of this is investment advice. So I'm not going to tell anyone <laughs> what to do with their money. But I will. Hey, you're here, folks. Bye. Yeah, exactly. Right now. I'm in my fist on the table. Put put everything in. Get grandma's retirement savings. This is mad money. This is mad money with Eric Krause. <laughs> oh, please, God, no. Um, <laughs> but but I do think, I think like the the public markets, right? I think long term, it's a, you know, it's, there's a voting machine and there's a weighing machine. And I think. Right. If I was, if I fast forward five years out, I think a lot of those businesses have become market leaders. If you look at like Duolingo, Dropbox, Chegg, Bumble, right? Those are going to be institutions that we'll use in five years. I, I don't, I don't think there's any mm-hmm. way around that. They're very sturdy. Very sturdy, right? They, they are, they are infrastructure in the industry. Expanding into the yeah. market, Duolingo launching their math app, which yep. I was pretty excited to check out for my kids. Like there, even some of these big kind of industry pillars. I think it's underappreciated how they can expand into new markets and use the leverage that they have in one area to to continue to grow as well. Yeah, and so so my guidance to entrepreneurs, right? We're still doing deals. We're doing deals at you know well north of ten times revenue. Um, so I think once again, if you build a really good business over the long term, you will be valued correctly. And so you know that's that's a lot of that's my job, right? Is to communicate the value, not just what it is today and take up trading comp and apply it to your revenue. That's a really bad way to value a business, but to show people, Hey, here, this is what this business looks like in three years. And if you have a chance to buy it today for 70% of what it's going to be worth in three years, isn't that a great deal? And so that's, that's a lot of what we do on the private market side. So, you know, I, I think if you read any of the press, right, private market valuations on average are coming down. That's absolutely a fact. Right. Um, and a lot of that is either investor demand, it's LP demand. Um, and it's also entrepreneurs saying, Hey, I got to get a deal done because either I'm really worried about the recession. So I'll take a little bit less, um, or their business just never hit the marks. They were saying it was going to do during their last round. So it deserves to go down. And so I, I think that's a lot of what's playing out. Um, and so I always ask everyone to kind of peel the onion a little bit, look at each individual business and then decide, is that what you're seeing in the macro trends or, or not? So so even with the public valuations going lower, and, and like you said, I mean, they, they kind of went in lockstep with public SaaS, B2B SaaS companies. It wasn't, it wasn't uniquely consumer SaaS. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole nother really podcast. What we're talking about. <laughs> You're sounding like an ARK investor right now, Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> but there is still a huge opportunity in this space. And one of the things you talked about in, in the report is that investors have slowly woken up to consumer subscriptions as an asset class and that there is a lot of um, money available for investment in in this space. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about what you're seeing on, on that front um, as far as investments into, you know, funding and, and you know, Series A, seed, that kind of thing. We definitely still see, uh, first off, we see entrepreneurs building really great businesses. That is like the ben- the benchmark to whether or not this will be a successful asset class. Are people making copycats, me too's, right? Just trying to reskin something and put it back out there. And the answer is no. There's really great businesses being built that are unique, that are differentiated, that are offering consumers a different value than what already exists out there. So if you have that baseline uh, dynamic, then investors will show up. And so- the way we've seen it over the last couple um, over the last couple months is, is there's absolutely still demand. You know, I think as I, we, we closed a deal today, we'll close another deal later this year um, of people that are looking to buy or invest in in CSS businesses. And so, I mean, you could look at you could look at kind of some of our the data in our report. I won't go like deal by deal, but there are absolutely still deals happening. There's lots of firepower on the sides. 
Um, and the, the key thing that exists, right, is the dynamic of great businesses being started. They're growing. Consumers still looking for solutions to needs that aren't being met. And then I think the, the world has shifted and said, uh, the consumer saying, I am now willing to pay a subscription to solve my, my pain point. And that's a massive mental shift. And investors are, are realizing that and are, and are backing up the truck on some, of these, on some of these opportunities. Now, they might not be willing to pay as much as they would in the past. And they said, hey, you got to prove it to me, right? You can't just say, I'm going to grow up into the right for three years straight. I'll pay you half that valuation today. And then listen, if you get there in three years, we'll be there. We'll be there ready to go with the, the dump truck of money. Um, so there is a little more prove it um, in the market right now than there was probably the last uh, 24 months. Mm. Yeah. And then one of the exciting things, too, is just how uh, you were talking earlier about how kind of cash efficient uh, consumer subscription software can be. And, and part of that trend is tools like Revenue Cat making it easier and easier to to build these things. And it it feels like, um, and, and I've seen this. I mean, I, you know, I joined Revenue Cat because I was beating my head against the wall with bugs in my subscription apps. And it, it feels like we're we're just starting to see this play out in kind of all the different categories. There, all the the ad based technology, all the so much of the infrastructure around building an app was tailored around games or, or other categories. And it feels like we're more SaaS, right? Yep. We were in, in, in CSS, we were borrowing SaaS tools, right? And they've started to get better. Like intercom has started to get better with mobile and there's other providers um, that have made mobile more of a focus. Yeah. So how do you see that uh, kind of empowering developers to move quicker and build more value. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's a huge area of focus for us. Actually, this year is a big area we're spending time on that is, is we kind of call it the pickaxes and shovels of the CSS space. So if we if you use the, a terrible analogy, and maybe I speak in analogies too much, is, is the <laughs> CSS entrepreneurs, right, are, are gold miners. They're out there trying to find something that's going to appeal to everyone, and it'll be a huge, huge success. And then there's companies that are building the pickaxes and the shovels to sell to those gold miners. And so... If, if and Jacob, you're a perfect example of this, right? If you if you go five years back and, and Revenue Cat wasn't nearly the scale and the efficiency it was today, entrepreneurs had to be really good coders and they had to be building all these tools. They had to have some sort of you know massive API integration. They weren't able to ingest as much data. They weren't have they weren't able to look at the outputs of their consumers, right? They had no idea what was happening inside the app around engagement, around payments, around retention. We didn't even know back then either that there were others <laughs> we all kind of just felt like we were figuring this out by ourselves yeah. right like we hadn't pulled our heads up that's exactly right but now there's now there's customized tools for like subscription management right just like you guys there's marketing tools out there that you could use really quickly to go both email as well as mobile and it's all automatic right you could send one message just and go across 10 channels that was something you had to do manually you had to have 10 people do that like five years ago you know you've got payments right that used to be really hard to do now with Stripe, you can integrate in about, I don't know, I'm not a coder, but call it about two hours. And you can immediately get payments from anywhere in the globe. Like just if you say that in two hours and you told that to someone who worked at PayPal 20 years ago, yeah. they would slam their fist through a door. Um, and then if you look at like reporting and analytics, you really can understand what's happening inside your business much better than you ever could, you know, five years ago. Oh, yeah, that's that's overlooked. It's just like how much more mature the data landscape has gotten like back, you know, I think 10 years ago using like the first iterations of Mixpanel and things like this. Um, and yeah, you, it was great. You had these big data stores, but like we hadn't we didn't have Redshift and, and Snowflake and like this ability to just like um, Zynga was doing mm -hmm. it at the time right. because they had massive teams, teams that could like roll everything into a database and whatever. And that's now pushed down that like everybody can stand up a Redshift or a Snowflake cluster and a BI tool. Mm -hmm. 
um, dump all your events in there. Like that's, that was a big, for us at Elevate, that was a big, this was like 2013, 14. That was a big transition for us. It's like pulling all of our events into a database. Like that was a massive project. Now, like you get that out of the bo- segment, we'll do that for you out yeah. of the box now. Like it's crazy. You're, you're hitting on it correctly, out of the box, right? So there's effectively a CSS infrastructure. If you're, if you're a certain type of CSS business, you probably know the 10 to 15 tools you need to integrate. And that can be done out of the box, exactly as you described. They all know how to work together. They all know how to communicate. The APIs allow the information to flow seamlessly across from, from like different, different tool to tool. And so then as the entrepreneur, the one thing you're focusing on is the content and how you find customers. So you're focusing on the two most important pieces of a CSS business, not about how all the underlying infrastructure works. You don't have to worry yeah. about that. Differentiation. You're only focused on differentiation. Only adding right? value, right? So if your entire focus and your team that you're hiring is around adding value and not just making sure like, you know, the information flows from stack one to stack two, you're going to build a better business because you're out there listening to your customer. You're watching them use your service and you're not worrying about like, can I email my customers or are they going to be able to pay me on time? All that you're operationally leaner, leaner, right? I was just thinking about some of the, some of the companies I know that are in the millions, ten, pushing tens of millions of revenue have like way fewer employees than you would ever expect. <laughs> like, because they don't have to do most of this stuff. Right. And like, unless you're doing something really crazy, unique at scale, like you don't need a team to manage your like crud, um, uh, user management stuff anymore. You don't need a team for subscriptions anymore. Like you don't need any of that stuff. And so, um, especially when you're thinking about in a business that's CSS where like LTV CAC, like you do have gross margin considerations. That's a big deal that you can have like lowered OPEX just because, you know, you can live longer, you need less capital. Like um, there's all kinds of advantages. Well, and the job titles change, right? They might be the same number of people, but they're all focusing on very different things than probably they used to 10 years ago. Right. They're focusing on ensuring that, you know, the content is perfect, right? That they're localizing it for new geographies, right? As they're doing growth, that they're integrating new data sources, like to make the maps cleaner and more interesting, you know, more valuable to the user. And I I think that's where you're starting to see, you know, some of these businesses start to get much longer retention curves than where they were in the past because they're building better businesses. Yeah. I mean, the apps are so good. (laughs) It's amazing. Like if you download the top, just like, you know, you think if you download the best, we're going to get rid of the term apps. We're uh, on this podcast. Next time I'm on here, we're going to find a new word for app based businesses. So they're app portals into a universe of services. (laughs) We're going to figure this out. Okay. Let me know. Let me know. Uh, cause, cause, cause yeah, I think it's, it's going to be hard to break, break that out of my vocabulary, but, uh, but, but they are so good. Like I just, I downloaded, um, Strava recently. I haven't touched Strava in like five mm-hmm. years. Uh, and I was just checking it out. And I was like, wow, like all of these apps that like I, you know, that I visited five years ago, 10 years ago, um, have just become so rich. Um, and, and I think now even the apps we see, you know, a lot of the dynamism we're seeing with new apps and new entrants, like they're, they're, they're where Strava was five years ago, six or seven years ago, right? Like they're, they're going to keep deepening their niche. They're going to keep building more use cases. They're going to keep refining their products. And I, I don't see any reason why they can't repeat that. It takes time to build really good software to like, uh, uh, I mean, if you look at like that Strava example. Um, and so, yeah, and it should happen pr- probably even faster now, right? Like the tools are faster, like the incentive structures are stronger. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's early days. That's a, as a founder, you're required to say that constantly. <laughs> it's early days. Yeah, it's early days. One of the interesting things too is that as these companies have been able to build great businesses, and as uh, the funding has been there for them to grow and invest in the content and all that kind of stuff, there's also a growing opportunity to exit these apps. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. Uh, and you and I were just 
recently talking about this in San Francisco, it just seems like there's a lot of money out there now chasing consumer subscription businesses all the way from, you know, PE firms to these smaller app investors. I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective on kind of the, the market for exits right now. Obviously, I'm, I'm extremely biased. Let's just put that out there right <laughs> off the bat. Like, this is what I do. This is what I spend 80 hours a week on. But I, but I mean, I, I think the devil's in the details. Uh, and, the, and the answer is really positive. I, I will yeah. say the last, you know, 12 months, was a, it was kind of interesting because no one had a true idea of like what the consumer behavior looked like. Because you had, you had pre-COVID users. Then you had peak COVID users. So people that downloaded a subscription because they had nothing else going on on a Saturday and they tested something out. And then you have post-COVID users. And so a lot of the behavior of each of those three groups has now been clarified, right? Over the last 12 months, you know, thank God most of the world has opened up. Um, and so user behavior is returning to what I would call like a normal normal stage. And so, you know, from, from the GP Bullhound lens, right, as, as I mentioned, we just closed a CSS deal today. We're going to close another one at the end of October. We have a third one that's going to close in December. And we've, we're getting inbounds left and right from... Uh, from buyers looking to pick up things. And um, that's both private equity and strategic. And so the way I think about it from the strategic landscape is, is if you have a service, if you're like a Bass Pro Shop and you're selling goods to consumers, uh, that's a one-time sale, right? They have to come into your physical store. They have to buy something in order for you to make profit. And that's it. That's the end of your relationship. And so I think a lot of the brands like that are saying, how do I extend my relationship with my consumer? And so we saw this with Pinkbike, uh, which is a company we sold um, last year, where they had three uh, legs to the stool. And so the first piece of the stool was just content, right? So they delivered stuff that consumers that were fascinated with mountain bike wanted to go see. And you're going to see that happen across a variety of, of platforms now where they're, and they monetize through ads, simple, super simple. But that was really a content engine to pull people into the other key piece of the business, which is one uh, consumer subscription business called Trailforks. And then a second one, which was a marketplace where they could buy and sell mountain bikes. And so I think brands that are fascinated, they have like a really powerful position in food, in entertainment, in services. They're going to want to monetize their customer in more ways than just one transaction. And so a consumer subscription element of that enables you to have a constant dialogue with your consumer and also get feedback from them. What do they care about? What do they want to have? What do they want to learn about? Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's going to allow you to change the rest of your business in a much more rapid way than just waiting for you know someone to come back to your store next month when they go on a fishing trip. One of the things I've been thinking about as well is, and to your example, um, you know Bass Pro Shop. You know if they were to acquire a consumer subscription business, one of the struggles for a lot of consumer subscription apps is actually monetizing the free users. Well, in an ATT world, what's the perfect way to advertise your fishing lure at Bass Pro Shop in a way that you can track end to end and understand the consumer behavior and what ads are resonating? Uh, and so I think there, there are a lot of opportunities for these uh, physical goods marketplaces to acquire a consumer subscription business in this space and then be able to get those end to end conversions and and have a much so so like if Bass Pro Shop is advertising in their own app they're going to have a much higher return on ads than the than the app could have done just putting Google ads in there there's a lot of synergies there um, not just the consumer yeah. attention but also driving incremental physical purchases and there there's so many things like that it's interesting to think about like why would a um brick and mortar or like legacy business or whatever, acquire something like this. And I'm trying to think, like I've seen 
some examples of like Walmart's app, for example, I think is really well done. There's a handful of these legacy businesses that have built their own app, but Walmart's invested in their technology platform for, for a long mm-hmm. time. They've done they've done a lot there. That's hard, right? Um, so it makes a lot of sense to go out and uh, probably, you know, when you think about the scale of like an established public large business, um, you know, these consumer construction companies aren't that expensive right in that terms and it's a massive it's a massive de-risk for them right to like and then maybe even just gives them a better app to build in and like stuff like this so that that's interesting how are you seeing like founders evaluating options for liquidity in terms of um doing a private placement like this versus like pushing towards the public markets like obviously as public market multiples go down that probably becomes like a less savory yeah option (laughs) but like uh what do you think? What do you think is the decision point like uh, a founder or builder should make if they're like trying to decide like, hey, is like this uh, placement like is this a good time for me to exit or should I continue to push? Like, what have you seen the the differentiator there? It's it's the biggest question for a lot of founders. Once you get a business going, right, that is the question: Do I sell or not? It's it's a zero one conversation, and so we have a lot of conversations with founders, and and then there's always other dynamics, right? Do you have investors? Do you have like, is it just your friends and family, or is it a professional investor that has to have a return, right? And that was kind of a trade off you made when you took that money. But if you kind of go to the individual level and talk talk founders, right? We we always ask them like, will will this make you happy? Is it life changing money, or is it just nice to have money? what were you going to do after this, right? Are you going to stay on, keep working? Are you really excited about this buyer? Or are you saying, hey, this is just someone who's writing me a check and then I'm going to leave in two years. And we'll, and when that two years ends, will you feel good about it? And so we, we kind of have a lot of these more, I almost call them more like philosophical discussions with founders long before we want to get engaged because it helps us align on the outcomes. And so some people are saying, mm. hey, I've got a great business and I don't want to sell. And I think that's a really powerful statement to say. And so if, if that's the case, then you should be changing your, you should be thinking about your business totally different versus, hey, I want to sell in three years, right? That is, those are two very different mentalities. And so when, when people are approached, which is happening a lot, I ask founders to kind of think through like, is this the top five buyer that I can imagine my company being with, right? And if so, like, if it's not, then probably shouldn't pick up that phone. If it is, then it's time to kind of get into the nitty gritty, which is, you know, what's the valuation that makes me, you know, okay, happy, and then ecstatic. What's going to make my investors okay, happy, and ecstatic? So we kind of walk every founder through a decision tree and just say, like, think fundamentally, not just don't think about dollars and cents, but think about happiness, think about outcomes, think about is your app going to continue to exist or does it get, you know, evaporated and kind of sucked into a Borg of <laughs> other businesses where, you know, you don't have a legacy anymore. Is, is that important to you? Or you're going to like, cool, I have seven other yeah. apps. I'm going to go focus on those seven. You know, I think that's a, well, that's a lot of the questions we ask people. So it sounds like it's an emotional decision <laughs> is the answer, really, like largely, like at least on the founder side, right? Like whether or not to to keep pushing or to like explore. Yeah, these I mean, options. I'm, I'm in the people business. People think you're selling businesses, but in reality, it's a people business. It's it's talking to someone and saying, like, what's going to make you happier than you are today? Um, and I have plenty of founders that come to me and say, I'm ready to sell. And then we kind of go through this and they say at the end of it, they're like, actually, I'm not. And, you know, it, it feels <laughs> weird, right? Because as an investment banker, I get, I get paid if someone sells. But I, I also get paid if people are really happy. And so I'd rather them be happy and not sell versus they call me in two years being like, I can't believe I sold my baby. This was the, the worst decision I've ever made. And I am miserable. That is a really <laughs> bad outcome for me personally. I just feel I feel awful. 
I'm not taking, I'm Eric. I just, I would pick <laughs> up the phone. I'd just be like, oh, there's nothing good comes out of this. You know, that person calls two years later. What, what no, do they want? I can't, I can't do that, Jacob. <laughs> that, ethically, that feels bad. But <laughs> that's why you're in the people right. business. But, but luckily, like <laughs> most of my founders are usually very happy um, when they get to an outcome because we've done the work, right? We've gone through and we've thought about. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of time to have cold yeah, feet. Exactly. Right? You, can um, always, you can always say no. Even at the last minute, you're like, nope, not going to happen. I still have mixed feelings about selling my uh, mirror app. Um, I, I had made talked a very emotional decision. Yeah, you know, I've talked about that a few times. I have never met a founder who sold who has been like, yep, best decision yeah. in my life. Like never, mm-hmm. never once. And I met quite a few. There's always trade-offs. Yeah, even I'm sure even the success cases you talk about, Eric, there's always like, there's always going to be this like question. I mean, maybe not. Like maybe, maybe. It, I, I think in the, you, you mentioned it, the the conditions of the found like do you have seven other apps like is this your main thing like is this your legacy like those questions are like very important and i think like uh yeah i mean those are good things to to know i mean i think about the deals we've done investment like uh venture investments taken on and like those you like to think like oh we're very strategic about we raised this a and this b and like with this money to get us to this stage and like you should be doing that but there's still a very large emotional <laughs> component. Like, how are you feeling about the business? Like, what's your commitment? What's your bullishness on like how big it can be? And like, you can look at all the numbers, but ultimately like as a founder and like a, a buyer or an investor, like it comes down to like, do I believe, do I have like belief, right? Like sort of, sort of like a hard to like grab onto belief. Yeah, I know Eric, this isn't as much in, in your wheelhouse. Um, I, I think we talked about you, you pretty much doesn't make sense to work with you people hound until you're talking, uh, what would that be like a eight figure or more exit, 10, $20 million exit is kind of the floor for where it makes sense to engage GP Bullhound. Um, but what I've, I've seen a huge trend in the last just 12 months of, uh, companies spun up specifically to buy subscription apps. Uh, and I don't know if you've you've talked to any, but I, gosh, I must have talked to eight in the last twelve months. Eight different companies where they, uh, and the model is typically they raise funding to kind of build the machine, but then each individual transaction is structured with debt. So they'll buy an app with debt, and then with consumer subscription, you know, typically you you understand the churn. And you're, you know, they're not buying apps that have terrible churn. And so there's some, you know, kind of purchasing an annuity aspect to it that makes sense to then do it via debt. Uh, and there, there just seems to be a ton of money, even in the smaller exits, kind of below uh, what you deal with. Um, so I, I wanted to share that with the audience in that, you know, Eric's talking about much bigger exits, but there's a lot of opportunity to exit your app, even if you're doing you know, 50K a year, 100K a year, all the way up to millions of dollars a year. Um, there really are sh- buyers out there in the marketplace now looking for pretty much the entire breadth of uh, small, tiny app all the way up to, you know, massive apps. Do you Have you had any direct exposure to some of those uh, companies buying smaller apps? Yeah, I mean, we, we see it happen all the time. Um, yeah. We get tons of pings where people reach out to us saying, hey, we, I want to sell my app. And I was, I was like, hey, that's great. But like, it's just not the right fit for us. We're too expensive. We're, you know, and investment banks are not scalable. Yeah. But you have a great business, right? You do. You have a phenomenal business. It's making you money, right? It's, it's got a good It's got a good customer base. They're steady. They're retaining, right? Maybe they're not growing a ton because you're not doing any marketing, but that's okay. You have a great business. Like the product is good. And so, yeah, we're happy to make introductions. There's, you know, there's probably uh, five to 10 companies I know really well that are buying apps. And what they're doing is, is it's kind of back to the old private equity model from the 1980s, 
they're looking at the business and saying, is it producing cash? And the answer is yes. Does it have, does it have a moat? And the answer is yeah. It's got customers that have downloaded their product into their, onto their phone and they're using it, you know, once a week, twice a month, you know, whatever it is. Um, and then that, that gives you some certainty around an investment and then someone will put a dollar amount on that. And so, um, you know, they're not usually high dollar amounts, not usually super high valuations, but a lot of cases it's life changing money for, you know, two or three development teams to get a million bucks, right. It enables you to go out and do the next thing or the thing after that. And so I think for, for a lot of people, these are really good homes for, for businesses. And then if we think about it within the app store, right, there's, I think there's close to 6 million businesses that are making money in the app store. It's probably higher today. And so not all of them are going to go public. Right, a fraction of one percent will go public. Fraction of a exactly. fraction, really. <laughs> not, not to do public like, math, but that's exactly right. And then even even between that, right? Yeah, maybe the top five percent. Six million is a big that's right. denominator. Yeah, that's that's where the numbers start to confuse me, Jacob. Um, but then even then, if you say <laughs> yeah. the next five percent, maybe you're ready to sell for fifty million. Then there's the other ninety-five percent of those businesses will never get to that size, and that's okay, right? That doesn't mean it's a bad business. It means it just hasn't gotten to that size, and there will be buyers for that because. They're, they have value. Yeah. And so I think, I think people are really thinking through that quite, quite frequently. And there's a lot of them out there. I mean, it must work because yeah. it's happening, right? It's like all these things in the economy. Like if there's a niche there, it's going to get filled. So um, there's certainly something happening. Yep. You can do cross-marketing between apps. You can, you can scale it up and say, hey, we don't, need, you know, we don't need to pay salaries to that many developers. We need less developers. And then you can layer it on. You can do, there's a ton of stuff you can do with that. And so I'm really excited. And you know, I kind of call them CSS conglomerates. Mm-hmm. Um, where maybe the, all the apps aren't related, but they they all have the same underlying dynamics, right? Maybe they all use revenue cats. They get a discount on their subscriptions. Maybe <laughs> they all have like different marketing. Exactly. Contact sales. <laughs> yeah, reach out to sales. Um, you know, so I think, I think there's a lot of efficiencies that will exist. And then more importantly, I think they provide great outcomes for builders that maybe it's not the next billion dollar app, but it is it is a good win for you. Yeah, well, I wish we could talk for another two hours because... <laughs> There's so much more to talk about, but uh, we do need to wrap up. Any any uh, closing thoughts as we wrap up? No, I mean, I'm, we're super bullish on the space. If you guys, please go to gpbullhound.com. You can read our research for free. Um, I'm pretty available on LinkedIn and Twitter. Love to chat with founders. Even if you're not a potential client, doesn't matter to me. We're here to support the ecosystem. And so, you know, if, if you're not, if we're not going to work together, that's fine. We'll, we'll happily try to refer you to someone who's going to be able to help. So don't never hesitate to reach out. Awesome. Thanks so much for, for joining us today, Eric. This was such a fun chat. I always love, love chatting. We'll have to have Anytime, you on again, guys. 2023 report number five. So I got to do more. I got to do more work is what you're telling me. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's expectations now, Eric. <laughs> Thanks guys. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you have a minute, please leave a review in your favorite podcast player. You can also stop by chat.subclub.com to join our private community.